Welcome, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Everything Imaginable podcast. My name is Gary Cotchalillo, and today we have Andre Dosha. He is a Zen monk and teacher in the Five Mountains Zen Order. He teaches high school English, is married, and has two children. In July of 2016, Andre received Dharma transmission from his teacher, Zen master, Wanji Dharma. Andre is the lead teacher in the Original Mind Zen Sangha, located in central New Jersey. He has authored five books about Zen, Buddhism, and other forms of spirituality, which are all available on Amazon. Thank you for being on the show, Andre. Thanks for having me. This is awesome. So uh, what spiritual path were you raised with? None at all, which may be the best path to follow uh, you're leading into contemplative or uh, introspective forms of meditation and study. Uh, my dad is, uh, I'm a first generation American. My dad is uh, from Syria and he was raised Muslim, but doesn't really practice at all because he worked around alcohol in a banquet hall. So he couldn't really practice. I don't know if that was just an excuse. So he didn't have to practice at all, but he never um, observed Ramadan or any, any um, Islamic uh, traditions at all. And my mom is, uh, she was born in Germany and she's also an immigrant. So uh, she was raised Lutheran, loosely though, never, I mean, we, my, my household was, I guess, like a non-denominational Protestant. Um, I, I identified as being, I guess, a Christian in the sense of, Jesus, but not um, related to any particular um, sect or school of uh, Protestantism itself. So I guess I was, to put it loosely, I was uh, born and raised capitalist, consumerist, like so many other Americans. <laughs> so what got you interested in Zen? Uh, I would have to say what got me interested in Buddhism first was uh, Siddhartha, the book by Herman Hesse. I read that in high school and I guess I was riddled with the typical teenage angst. I was like, I don't want to go to college. I did eventually. Uh, I'm like, what am I going to do with my life? And here's this story of this, this young man who's caught in a, in a similar cycle where his, the expectations are that he's going to follow in his father's footsteps. He was a Brahmin or a priest in, in India 2,500 years ago. The story runs loosely parallel to the Buddha's life. The Buddha's actually character in the story. And uh, Siddhartha goes on this lifelong quest uh, through all, through uh, all, I guess, so many different uh, teachers who influence him, many of whom are not what you would consider like an orthodox teacher at all. One of them is a prostitute. Uh, he learns from gamblers. And I just, that, that book awakened in me something that I think my 18-year-old mind was looking for. And it wasn't until years later, um, maybe in my late 20s, like when I was maybe 10 years later, approximately, uh, I had a career, I was married, and then I started becoming interested in Buddhism as just a general category. Uh, uh, we'll talk about Zen in particular, but Buddhism, chiefly because the, 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 first, the first rule in Buddhism, I know some people don't like to stay, say it this way, but it's, it's that life is filled with a lot of suffering. And 
And first off, I was impressed by the ballsiness. Like, yeah, they're not pulling any punches here. He's, this guy's saying something that a lot of people don't want to admit about life. And that, that fact, I think, resonated with me very much. Uh, I was in my late 20s in a, in a tough place, psychologically, uh, emotionally, spiritually. And so I started to read about Buddhism. And one of the first books that I picked up was Zen. And then I went online and started looking for groups to sit with because I wanted to learn how to do this thing, meditation. Sure, there were resources online, but it was like, I'm, I want to be one-on-one with these people. And so I started sitting with a group in Princeton. And from there, I, um, I started practicing in Philadelphia. And then eventually, I met my teacher online because he, he works remotely uh, with students. And then I joined the Five Mountain Zen Order uh, first as, as, a, as a novice priest and then uh, a bodhisattva monk and now eventually as, as a fully ordained um, monk itself. So uh, that's the short path that led me to, to Buddhism and I guess Zen. Zen was the one that was in, uh, online. I mean, if it had been a Tibetan practice, maybe I'd be or Vajrayana forms of Buddhism. So how does uh, Zazen versus other forms of meditation, how do they compare? That's a good question. Um, most forms of meditation that I've encountered or that I practice are awareness-based. So they're about bringing yourself to the present moment, grounding yourself in a physical awareness. Hatha yoga, for instance, where you're going through these uh, forms, which are at least somebody my size and my condition, are pretty darn difficult, require an enormous amount of concentration. And so from my understanding, what you're doing here is you're bringing your full being, your full presence to uh, whatever it is that you're encountering. And the, and you, the yoga case, it would be med- um, yoga, you know, you the form that you're trying to practice. And in the seated meditation, which is what most people would call Zen, Zazen, uh, it's fundamentally the same. It's about cultivating your ability to come back to the present moment over and over again without judgment. And that, that's the last part that I think is the, the thorniest. The first is tough, which is returning moment after moment. Uh, whenever we try to get away from a situation that we find uncomfortable, we probably find ourselves coming back to it moment after moment because we want to get away from it. But there's the judgment there. There's the, the, that part of ourselves that's resisting the present moment as opposed to opening ourselves to it entirely. So I would characterize Zazen, which just means seated zen seated meditation as a form of meditation where you're fully present in whatever it is that you're doing it could be seated it could be driving it could be playing uh your your guitar it could be talking to somebody uh holding someone's hands watching a film perhaps so what would you recommend like i hear this a lot of times people say i can't meditate i can't stop my thoughts what would you recommend to that person i'll probably get castigated for this i don't know that med- that seated meditation is the right thing for everybody uh, Buddhism, especially the type of Buddhism that I practice, which is called Mahayana Buddhism, which is a later development in Buddhist thought, it emphasizes uh, that all, our, all the practices are just pathways that are eventually going to lead to an awakening that is non-conceptual and not grounded in any sort of uh, verbal experience. And so um, whatever it is that we are doing, if we're bringing ourselves fully present, 
then I think that we're practicing the spirit of what the Buddha was trying to teach us. Now, for a basketball player, that means cultivating that, that, you know, that, that awareness on the court. The challenge, of course, then, is how can they bring that same awareness, that same full presence to the rest of their lives? That's where it becomes uh, more difficult, and I think seated meditation becomes helpful. But I don't think – I say, why don't you ever meditate? And she says, I do. I do it all the time. What are you talking about? She goes, when I'm knitting, because you lose yourself as you get um, engulfed in an experience. It uh, could be, um, for instance, like Jimi Hendrix playing. The, I know I've used that a lot. You've probably heard it again. Where somebody's <laughs> playing an instrument, and they lose themselves entirely. There, there, mm-hmm. there is no I. There is no music. There, there's just the experience of the, the music unfolding. And I, I think that anybody's totally capable of doing it. The, the, the trick, as I pointed out, is can you do outside that, uh, outside of that discipline? Can, can the basketball player do it elsewhere in their life? Can the martial artist do it while they're in traffic and being beeped at? That's, that's the, the challenging part. So uh, meditation does come in handy with that respect. But, you know, there's no reason you have to sit down and do it. You could be standing. Uh, you could be, for instance, you're in line for the bus. Well, and now you're practicing standing meditation. So if we cut down these mental barriers of what we think meditation is – I think we can we can uh, lose ourselves in our present experience and realize that hey wait I can practice meditation anywhere it's not this rigid seated thing. What style of Zen do you practice? Like, is it Soto, Dojin? Um, technically speaking, I would be considered a practitioner of what is called. Uh, it relies on both. The I guess I suppose like the what people would traditionally say is the Rinzai method, which is using kongans or kawans as they are in Japanese, and the Soto method, which is which is a seated uh, meditation. So, um, but the the particular style of, of Zen that I practice would actually be called San because it comes from Korea. Uh, Zen master Sung San, who was a uh, a Zen monk in the Choge order came to the United States and with it, he brought his unique form of uh, Zen, uh, which is called, we could say Kanwa Chan. So it's, uh, it's a type of meditation that you're like, as I said before, is trying to really integrate it into all aspects of your life. And we're, I, I know we're going to talk a little bit about koans. Uh, it's using the koan as a method to uh, to find awakening in an everyday moment, moment after moment after moment. So I know that there's like a bunch of answers that I gave there. Um, Rinzai and Soto being the two pro- most prominent Japanese school of Zen Buddhism. Chan being the Chinese form, the original form of Zen Buddhism. And then San, S-E-O-N, as it's often rendered in English, is the Korean form which is, I think, most closely related to John. And so you see these different branches, but fundamentally, I, I believe that they are all uh, relying upon the, the same practice that was disseminated by the Buddha 2,500 years ago. What's the difference between Zen and Taoism? Uh, uh, I, I make no claims to be the originator of this fantastic quote, but I'll borrow it anyway, that if you took... Uh, Indian Buddhism, and you married it to, to Chinese Taoism, Taoism being the native religion in China at the time that Zen, or that Buddhism made its appearance in China. So if you married those two and they had a kid, it would be Zen Buddhist. So 
I think it's impossible to talk about Zen without right here, right now. The fact that um, no matter what we try, what we try to locate in the world, it could be a um, it could be a piece of paper, it could be a sip of water. That when we really get down to the experience itself, it's beyond any sort of uh, words that they words, verbal descriptions, concepts don't have the capacity to pin down reality. And this is not some mystical experience. It's the way that we encounter the world uh, every single day. Um, we are confronted with more paradoxes than we would normally like to, to acknowledge. And so Taoism celebrates those paradoxes as the Zen because it inherited that Chinese flavor for non-conceptual pre-verbal experiences. And so I would say that the Taoism and Zen are, are cousins and they're cousins that get along very well as opposed to some cousins, some families that don't. Uh, you mentioned earlier about a koan. What is a koan? I mean, it depends on um, who, who you ask that question. Um, so koan means, just means a public case in original, original uh, Chan Buddhism. That's, again, Chinese forms of Buddhism. And then eventually it became systematized in, uh, in later schools of Japanese practice, which is what we would call the Rinzai school, who relies upon the koan as a kind of nutcracker of sorts to break through your, uh, your conceptual thought into an immediate experience of reality as it is. So they use it kind of like you would um, a giant wedge to lift up a piece of concrete, for instance. That's a traditional <clears throat> way that uh, koans are used. Zen Master Sung San, who came to the United States after um, his experience practicing in both Korea and Japan, uh, he had a much more grandmotherly approach. And so I prefer to say that I don't practice koan study, I, uh, I practice kongan study, with the emphasis on the more Korean form of the, not only the pronunciation of the word, but the practice itself. For us, a kongan reveals the truth that's implicit right here, right now. And so when uh, somebody asks you, the poses to you the kongan, for instance, you know, does a dog have Buddha nature or show me moo? What we're asking for is an expression of it right here, right now. It's not to be used as a, as a tool, this is like a breakthrough tool as much as it is um, a lens that's going to allow us to see reality better in the same ways when you go to the optometrist and she says, is this, how's this lens better or worse, better or worse. And as we, we clarify ourselves, uh, we realize that we're constantly confronted with these kongans, everything that we do in a world of dualisms of good and bad, right, and wrong, white and black, us versus them, that we're always confronted with these kongans. And it's not about transcending duality as much as it is about learning to integrate that duality into our lives without being caught up in the concept of this person's bad, this person's good. So uh, I, I would say that that's fundamentally the difference between uh, traditional approach to koans versus as I, as I practice the kongan practice. Why can I find the answers to koans on Google? <laughs> I mean, I suppose you could. There's, there's a, a book, I think it's called The Sound of One Hand Clapping. Uh, there was a, uh, a Westerner who wanted to blow the top off of Rinzai Zen. And so he published a book with a lot of the traditional answers, which can be problematic, I guess, if you're thinking about where you, you complete one and then another and then another and another, the same ways you do classes in college. Like you can't take 102 before you take 101. 
But if, if we look at it instead through the lens that everything in, in the world that's manifesting is its own form of a kungan, is its expressed self, then uh, to, to try to Google it would be to cheat yourself in the same way as like, so say there's a movie coming out, the new Scorsese film, and you're like, oh, wait, let me go to Wikipedia and see what, see what the, the, the ending of the movie is. Well, you're just robbing yourself at that point. So instead of, if we reframe the Kungan rather as something to be accomplished, something to be broken through or uh, somehow uh, accumulated, and instead see it as it's just a playful, very Taoist idea, playful interaction with the world as it is right here, right now, then, uh, then Google's answer becomes uh, not only a shortcut, but superfluous, I think, contradictory. So it has to be answered by direct experience rather than some outside source. Yeah. So when, so when, when I work with my teacher or when I work with a student, what I'm asking them to do is to, to summon within themselves the wisdom that they inherently have as a person. We would call that Buddha nature and the, manifest it in a correct way. So we're, what we're doing here is we're practicing ethics uh, in order to encounter or, or to respond to the many challenging um, dilemmas that life seems to be posing at us at any, at any given moment. All right. So it's, uh, it's about manifesting or embodying, I guess, the knowledge that you, that, that inner wisdom that you have at this present moment. And so what you want to do is you want to reflect what's going on. If somebody's hungry, you don't give them uh, a Gatorade, you give it to them that if they're thirsty. If somebody has a headache, you give them aspirin. You don't give them cough syrup. So it depends on what life is asking us at that moment. So there's a word that's tossed around a lot in Buddhism, and that word is enlightenment. And, um, I mean, I even know one asshole who guarantees enlightenment. Um, <laughs> can, can you tell me what enlightenment is? Uh, I think that enlightenment is seeing through the, bound, the, the, the boundaries of this so-called self and being able to re respond compassionately to those around you because you realize that they and you are not separate beings. And take, for instance, this, uh, the horrible strife that America is suffering from right at this moment. There's so many different factions all contesting with one another. And uh, our practice is realizing that when you harm somebody else, yes, that, that person is the most immediately harmed, but you're also harming yourself because this so-called separation between me and others is nothing uh, more than imaginary. Uh, I mean, take the, the COVID pandemic as a great example. Uh, I mean, all it takes is one person in a room to get infected and it spreads because we're all inevitably connected. And so how do we respond compassionately to whatever it is that life demands us at that moment. And sometimes that compassion might be sternness. It might be tough love. Uh, it all depends on what is required at that moment. And if your dog is running off its leash and is about to run into traffic, well, you scream at it because you want to startle so it doesn't do that. I don't, I'm not worried about its feelings right now. I'm worried about its physical safety to bear uh, the, 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 cellular understanding that hurt all have you reached enlightenment um well it, the paradox there is if <laughs> the moment we 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 use i in the sentence and we believe it then uh, naturally enlightenment's 10 feet away 
because there is no I in enlightenment other than in the spelling. Enlightenment, I'm speaking of here, is, is understanding that who I am as an individual is not really who I am. Um, Andre Hallow is just a guy that files his taxes and goes to work here and uh, lives in, in central New Jersey. But who and what I really am is not limited just to this being. I am me, of course, but that's not all that I am. So to ask, uh, is someone enlightened is, uh, is almost a trick question because we have to see through the, the illusory nature of, of the self to its interconnectedness with everything else in order to become so-called enlightened in the first place, in which case the eye dissolves. That brings up another topic that I didn't actually write down, but can you explain this idea of no self? Um, I mean, this is very, uh, uh, no self, anatta, anatman, as, as the Buddha spoke about it, uh, was, I believe, a tool more than it was a philosophical point of view. What he wanted to do was break people's attachment to this identity that they think uh, they need to defend, this I. And uh, what, the, what the Buddha told us to do was he gave us a very systematic approach to investigating. Well, what is it that you think you are? Are you your body? If you're your body, well, then what if, we, if you lose a, a finger or a toe? Clearly, you're not the whole body. Uh, but if you lost your toe, that toe wouldn't be yours anymore. And so we would move through this uh, very precise it's almost scientific, empirical-based practice where we're scrutinizing and investigating, is this me? And we move through our physical body, through uh, our, what he calls the five skandhas. So we're going through consciousness, volition, um, impulses, and nowhere can we identify or locate this thing that I think is myself. It seems to emerge from all of these things, and it shifts and, and runs around, but I can't quite find it. Now, that doesn't disrupt my ability to, to move around on a daily basis. I'm still me. When somebody says Andre, I don't say, there is no Andre. I respond because you know, I can, I can um, operate on a practical level. But deep down inside, the Buddha's wisdom is that everything is impermanent and everything is without a self. And if, if there's nothing inside of me that makes one thing, there's no characteristic that makes me me, well, then there's more that I share with other beings than what separates me from other beings. That's what the world needs right now. Absolutely, yeah. Can you uh, describe to me your life as a Zen master? I wake up in the morning and I brush my teeth, just like everybody else does. Uh, I think one of the myths that we need to dispel as uh, teachers of the Buddha Dharma is that the Buddha's experience is somehow mystical. I don't think he was a mystic. Uh, he was pointing to a very real, very physical, experiential moment, a moment after moment of awareness. It's just here right now. The Buddha's mind is fundamentally no different than ours. And this is what we see in later Buddhist thought called Buddha nature. It was a guarantee, <laughs> enlightenment guarantee. There was a guarantee that you are, you have everything that you need in order to become enlightened. It's almost like one of those programs where somebody says, anybody can play piano. Uh, I don't know the truth of it. I can't play piano. But imagine that that were the case. Uh, this is the same thing, that all of us have the potential to awaken. And it's not some epiphany experience that somehow uh, erases delusion or ignorance forever. It's a moment-by-moment -moment process. Okay, so like you have an awakening, and then you get pulled down by the dregs of habit 
and you get caught up back in the old cycles of ah oh, crap, greed, hatred, and ignorance. You levitate to work. I wish <laughs> that would be fantastic for my uh, <laughs> my car insurance. Actually, I don't uh, need to go anywhere to work because of COVID. So right now, I'm sitting in my office aka the Buddha room and that's where I do the majority of my teaching and work because we're home due to this pandemic uh, <laughs> <laughs> so um living in society as a Buddhist monk versus a renunciate life of living in a cave I've never lived in a cave and I can't imagine that it would be very convenient or, or would inspire me to do anything but uh I mean Buddhism has a long 2,500-year monastic tradition by which I'm referring to people, renunciates, who've given up all claim to, to, to land and property entirely. And I think it's a great question, one that remains unresolved. You know, is, is a lay practitioner such as myself, I'm married, I have two kids and a job, dog, is that any less of an expression of Buddha, Buddha the Buddhist practice than somebody who lives in say a monastery or who lives in a cave um we do what we can with what we have right that, that lifestyle is impossible for me nor is it appealing at all um in the same way as i think that our lifestyle is as lay people is probably inconceivable to someone like the dalai lama who's lived his entire life as a monastic so each has its own place um, and the Buddha himself, 2,500 years ago, spoke it to lay people, and he encouraged them to practice. So even then, there were the, the, the division wasn't uh, intended to rank or um, elevate one's form of practice over the other. It's just this is what we have at the current moment. The reason I asked that question is because of the story of Bodhidharma going into the cave and cutting off his eyelids. <laughs> That's harsh. Would you cut off your eyelids how could i see people if i didn't have eyelids the the, the uh, in in the in zen the ultimate expression of buddhahood or or the path to buddhahood is embodied by the bodhisattva and the bodhisattva is a being who has devoted himself to countless rebirths in order to save other beings and so if i cut off my own eyelids then i'm going to be less useful to help other beings i won't be able to see all right uh, so I, I've heard somebody ask the question, what's the difference between Christianity and Buddhism? So on Christianity, people want to avoid going to hell. In Buddhism, all right, the Bodhisattva intentionally goes to hell in order to save those beings because who else would do it? So it's, it's all about being, uh, taking that vow into our lives, that vow to save all beings and to, to, to deliver, not so much deliver them, but to um, deliver to them the Buddha Dharma so that they can awaken in any way that that's going to suit their, their current uh, needs. That was a great answer to that question. <laughs> um, how's your life changed since you started practicing Zen? You know, somebody, uh, there's, I think there's a website and it's called like 10% happier. Uh, somewhere there was this quotation that's floating around. It says, Zen, Zen, won't, uh, Buddhism won't change your life. It'll just make you 10% happier. I have never gotten 10% happier. <laughs> uh, it's just made me more aware of all of those pitfalls, all of the conditioning that I've accumulated over 42 years of life. And I just become aware of it. And a lot of it makes me uncomfortable. Like, damn, I didn't know that I was biased in that way or that uh, my expectations were that life would go 
this way or that way. So um, rather than necessarily transforming, that's a byproduct, but transforming my life into like some happy oasis, it's brought to me the attention to my life. I know when I'm angry and I know when I'm uh, upset and I know when I'm happy and I don't have excuses anymore to, uh, or unconscious excuses at least, to behave in a way so as to treat somebody poorly because I'm having a bad day. Because I know, all right, I'm in a bad mood and more than likely this is the reason why. And so instead, if we bring awareness to the moment, then we're less likely to be caught up in those, those habitual patterns, which are so painful for us and for other people. Often I hear people in Buddhism and Zen and stuff like that talk about their teacher, and how maybe their teacher is better than another teacher, et cetera, et cetera. Why, uh, I mean, does somebody have to have a teacher in order to practice? I guess it's like uh, playing an instrument. Uh, um, I play guitar, or I try to play guitar, and it's largely a, it's a, largely a practice that many Americans do on their own. Like sometimes people will study guitar with, a, with an actual, actual teacher, um, a professional teacher, and other times they try to wing it on their own. Whereas piano, for instance, has a long 500-year tradition of people going systematically through the curriculum of learning. This is how you play piano. And uh, both, both have their advantages. Uh, I think what's important is better that someone finds the right teacher for themselves rather than finding a teacher. I think no teacher is better than bad teacher. Okay? Um, and so I, I clicked with my teacher. And he calls me out when, when on my bullshit. If, if he's seeing something in, in the way that I'm, I'm pre presenting my life to him or um, being inconsistent or a, just a blind spot, he'll, he'll reveal that to me. And that's what I need. Other people need more of that grandmotherly love. I'm more of a grandmotherly teacher than, than my teacher. He can be very fierce at times and, and extremely loving as well. So I would say it depends on the person uh, and what they need at that moment. I think this is a great segue into my next question. What is the most valuable lesson you've learned from practicing Zen? My teacher always stresses, how may I help you? If we shift our emphasis from me to we, if we, do, if we can do that in our lives, we individually suffer less. More importantly, we're more helpful to those around us. So as we investigate the barriers of the so-called self and as they become uh, revealed to be just constructs of our own mind, we become more helpful to those people ar around us. And that's exactly what this, ne this world needs right now. Rather than doctrine, rather than being saved by some invisible bodhisattva, God, deity, saint, whomever, what we need is people to listen and be compassionate with one another. And I think that the, the, the best mantra for that is how can i help you what is it that you need at this moment what they really not what they want there's a difference I, somebody want, might want a million dollars but that's not going to help them what one bit um to somebody you know suffering from alcoholism it might be alcohol that's what they 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 want but that's not what they need they need help so part of the bodhisattva vow is about being able to assess what is it that's correct behavior at this moment and how do i how do i deal properly with that but I would go back to that fundamental question, how can I help you? Which is, which is really the heart of uh, Mahayana Buddhist teaching, Zen teaching. Well, this next question might be the most important question in my interview. Mm -hmm. 
is Kung Fu Panda Zen? 100% yes. I, it's one of my favorite movies. I don't want to give any plot spoilers in here because if you haven't seen it, you have to see this film. It's fantastic. Um, on so many different levels, uh, whether we're talking about uh, his father's uh, secret ingredient and secret ingredient soup, um, which is revealed inside, inside the film, or mm-hmm. there's this dragon scroll, which uh, reveals to you a very Zen, a very Buddhist uh, teaching, I think 100%. In fact, if, uh, if I had to talk to a child and they asked me what, or even adult, for that matter, what is, well, how can you explain Zen to me? Watch Kung Fu Panda. It not only is it hilarious, but it is a great distillation of uh, really what, what the Buddha was pointing to. That's great that they were able to put that in the movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember watching it. I was like, no way. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's, it's great. Hands down, one of my favorite films. So I think this also segues to my next question. Emptiness is such a gloomy concept. Why go there? Well, emptiness is what we, Shunyata, uh, is a development of the Buddha's original teaching when he was talking about no self. And if we think of no self as no boundaries, no real concrete boundaries between us and the world we live in, then by extension, what emptiness, all the emptiness is saying is that that same no self does not only apply to us, it applies to the entire world around us. You can't separate a tree from the soil in which it lives or the sunlight that it uses for photosynthesis or the water that nourishes it. It uses all of these things because it is empty of its treeness. There's no one quality about a tree that makes a tree separate from everything else. It's in mutual harmony with everything around it. And uh, that, that, that this is uh, an evolution, I, I believe, of the Buddha's original teaching. So as we turn our attention from the self and this idea of no self, which is anatta, anatman, and then we, we approach the world at large with it, we realize that the world is empty of boundaries. And what that really means then is that everything is, because it's empty, it's fundamentally interconnected. There's nothing that separates the tree from the soil in which it lives. Now, I know some critics will say, yeah, well, you know, if you, uh, the soil in my backyard is different than the soil in your backyard, but I'm reminded yet again of this horrible pandemic that's ripping through the world. And all it takes is one person to get sick. And because of the interconnectedness, the emptiness of being, it can, it can ripple all of its way across the world. And so emptiness, although it sounds like it is a word uh, that is negative, it's really, I think, uh, one that points to uh, the, the limitlessness of our being right here, right now. We and all beings are fundamentally connected and empty of separation. Wouldn't it be great if happiness was as contagious as COVID-19? Oh, my goodness. Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, but, you know, the, the Buddha pointed out that, that, that the human condition is one that is constantly in a state of craving. And so the moment, something, moment we think that we're happy, our minds, perhaps because of evolution, our minds will turn it upside down. And yeah, you've got the car, but now you didn't get the rims. And now you got to get the sound system. Now you got to get the, the, the alarm to protect the car. Um, so we're, we're in a constant state of pursuing some imaginary goal. 
Now, there's nothing wrong with being temporarily happy so long as you know that your happiness is only going to last for a little bit. And then we'll move on to the next project. And that's fine. That's being realistic. But it's when we, we become deceived into thinking that we're going to be uh, permanently happy that that's when we, I think, become extremely dissatisfied. So what do you personally believe happens after we die? And I don't know, or slapping your hand on a desk is not going to be an answer to this one. Uh, I, deep down inside, I think, although this is extremely not Buddhist, I think that it's the, the, it's the same experience as, as we were before we were born. Um, whether we want to call that nothingness, which... Buddhists from everywhere are going to come and uh, and attack me, give me bad karma uh, and curse me. But that's, uh, if our body is a conditioned thing and it relies upon so many factors beyond itself, when the conditions can no longer sustain our body or our life, they dissolve in the same way as uh, wood rots in, say, our backyard from a tree that's died. And I see no reason to think that consciousness should somehow continue after, after death. Um, and so for that reason, I think that more than likely, based on the scientific grounding in my life, that there's more than what I could just generally call a nothingness. Not even, not, not an I in a nothingness, like a sea of nothingness, just nothingness. No I, no nothing, no consciousness at all. You have a book called Brand Name Zen. Is that about CBD oil? <laughs> if it were, I would be making a lot more money. <laughs> Um, no, um, so a number of years ago when I was, uh, working with my, uh, teacher, Zen master Wanji Dharma, uh, I noted this phenomenon that I, that in Zen practice, which was that there are certain groups of Zen, certain practices that will, that, that have the stamp of approval. And then there were some other schools of Zen or practices that were not considered quote unquote Zen. And he said, that's, that's a great observation. And I said, yeah, it's, it's almost like there's a brand named Zen. And there's some brands that are knockoffs in the same way some people get like knockoff coach shoes or Gucci belts. And uh, so I started to investigate, well, what, what is this thing that has the so-called stamp of approval in Western Buddhist Zen, uh, Western Zen? And uh, it was this orthodoxy where seated meditation seemed to be the... Um, the highest form of practice, uh, along with a certain amount of approved chants, uh, usually from Japan. Uh, these practices tended to alienate Korean forms of practice, Vietnamese uh, forms of practice, Chinese as well. And uh, so I came up with this term and I said it was almost like we were in, in a world where people are selling Zen. And there's a brand name Zen, and then there's a knockoff as well. So that's what that book points to. Okay. So, you know, during, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is because there's so much going on in the world. And, um, you know, I think that your insight can offer some help to what's happening. So I just want to turn my podcast over to you for the next 10 minutes or so. And the platform is yours to say what you have to say. Okay. Well, thank you. I, uh, 
I was recently watching Patton Oswalt on uh, his uh, Netflix special. It was really funny. And, uh, but one of the serious moments where he, he, he stopped and he was talking about why he supports the Me Too movement and women. And he said he had to be perfectly honest. It was uh, first part was that he has a daughter. And he said that that was a really uh, selfish way of uh, motivation. But uh, I think it reveals an important facet of human psychology. <clears throat> we tend to be more invested inside of movements or, or, or political, uh, uh, political currents when they affect us directly. And what he was exposing was almost his hypocrisy, human hypocrisy. You don't have to be, re- you don't have to be personally affected in, uh, by, by, by discrimination, by prejudice, by violence in order for you to care about it. All right. I, I'm often uh, amused at these politicians of a certain political group, you could imagine, who, who it's revealed that their daughter is part of that or their son or somebody who doesn't ca- uh, care about, say, certain issues like gun control until someone in their lives are, is horribly you know, injured as a result of this. You don't need to sit and wait for it to become evident that this affects you. In fact, when we sit around waiting for the, this, this revelation, right, that, uh, that this affects me in some way, all we're, I think that's brought to our attention is our own selfishness. Rather, if we were to look at all beings on this earth, I'm not just talking about humans, but we'll, we'll, we'll leave it in that category for now. If we look at all beings as being connected and they all deserve dignity, respect, and compassion. Even those people we don't want to give it to, especially those people we don't want to give it to. We're talking about the politician whose stance you find completely repugnant. That person has loved ones, and that person has uh, people who care and love about them deeply. And I'm sure that despite many of their shortcomings, has some sort of likable quality to them, some sort of good quality. They can't be evil from head to toe. Darth Vader had to have some inkling of, of goodness inside of them. And when we, when we get past these concepts that we form about one another, that this person is good and this person is bad, then we can open a dialogue about, okay, what are the commonalities that we have? All beings want to be safe, secure, respected, and protected. And just because I feel that way right now, I feel protected, doesn't mean that I can sit on my laurels and watch as other people are victimized. In fact, I want to use the fact that I'm protected right now in order to help those who, who aren't. And that's the, you know, that's the Bodhisattva's vow in, um, in its most basic form, is about moving your attention from the so-called me, I, and concentrating instead on what is it that the world needs at this moment as we, as we shift from me to we. And so what I, what I implore people to do is to see through the illusion of this self. And we need to, you know, it requires an enormous amount of practice. Years of conditioning need to be undone. You got to really scrutinize this thing that I think I am. And once we disassemble it, we realize, holy moly, I have more connection to other beings than I have separating from that can emerge this thing, uh, Karuna, which we call great compassion. So I hope that we can get past these differences, uh, these religious differences, 
these political differences in order to help those people that need them most. And I'm speaking specifically here about, for instance, the Black Lives Matter, uh, the Me Too movement, and all of the a plethora of other people, groups all around the world of, uh, who have been politically marginalized, uh, treated poorly, LGBTQ uh, communities. And so uh, they need our help because when it really comes down to it, they are our brothers and sisters. Thank you for sharing that with us. I mean, I have to totally agree. Um, we definitely have to move away from the me and mm -hmm. towards the we because we are all connected and we all need each other. Absolutely. And one of the reasons I started this podcast is to, I don't know, try to expose people to ideas and things that they may not be familiar with and realize that their ideas are not much different than another person's ideas. It might be framed right. differently, but the bottom line is it's the same message. Yeah, I agree. Well, thank you for coming on my show today. Thank you, my friend. Excellent. Um, so to my listeners, please like and review my podcast on whatever platform you are using. It helps this podcast move up in the ranks and easier for people to find. And don't forget to tell your friends and families to listen to if anyone wants to be a guest, email me at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. Also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter is Everything Imaginable 2020. Also, everythingimaginable2020.com. And we also have a Patreon page, too, if you want to make a donation. Um, remember, everything that is... That is, was first imagined. See you next week, and thank you for listening. And oh yeah, I almost forgot. Earlier in the show, I mentioned this asshole who wrote a book called Enlightenment Guaranteed. <laughs> I am that asshole. And you can buy it on Amazon for only $5.99. Thank you for listening, and see you next week. All right.